The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, a farmer, Mr. Richard Oswald. He is a fifth-generation Missouri family farmer who lives on the farm in the same house where he was born. He lives in the Missouri River Valley in northwest Missouri near Langdon. He farms specialty corn, seed soybeans, and cattle. He is a special correspondent who is the author of a weekly column titled View from the Cab for Progressive Farmer, and he writes Letters from Langdon, which serves the Daily Yonder and rural news sources across rural America. Richard is director for Langdon's Special Road District. He's a director for the Organization for Competitive Markets, and he is a member of the Missouri Natural Resources Conservation Service Technical Committee. He's president of the Missouri Farmers Union and serves on the board of directors of the National Farmers Union and a Missouri Master Farmer. Welcome, Mr. Oswald. Hi, Melinda. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. You know, I think in order for us to understand our food, we probably ought to talk to more farmers and get more farmers' voices into the mix. So I'm thrilled to have you. First of all, I have to ask you, what is a Missouri Master Farmer? Well, there's a program, and I can't tell you the total number of states, but there are quite a number of states in the Union where they have what's called the Master Farmer Program, and each year they recognize four or five farmers in each state for being accomplished at what they do. And so I was honored as a Missouri Master Farmer a few years ago along with three other Missouri farmers from various pursuits in agriculture. Well, congratulations. I very much respect your work and your keeping your finger on the pulse of policies, agricultural and economic policies that affect the kinds of foods that are available to consumers. And there were two issues that I specifically wanted to focus on today. One is the country of origin labeling, and the other one has to do with this right-to-farm legislation. But before we get to the meat of those issues, I have to ask you, since you are a fifth-generation farmer, you have the value of bringing to us a historical perspective of the changes that you've seen over the decades. So thinking back to your great-grandparents and your grandparents, what kind of changes have you seen in agriculture in your part of the world? Well, when I was born and and when I was growing up, when I was very young, all the farms around me were diversified. All the farms had different kinds and different types of livestock. A lot of them had milk cows. Almost all of them had hogs and cattle, chickens. Here on the river bottom, where we've seen fields expanded and become bigger and bigger and a lot of fences disappear and a lot of homesteads disappear, back 50 years ago, everybody lived on 80 or 160 or maybe 240 acres, and there were fences separating each farm. And that's all changed here. I have a picture, going back a little farther, I have a picture of my father when he was 12 years old, walking barefoot through a cornfield, plowing corn, cultivating corn, 
behind a couple of sorrel mules. And so Dad lived to see everything change. He went from plowing corn behind a couple of mules to seeing glyphosate, a non-selective herbicide that a lot of farmers were using to spray and kill weeds. He didn't live long enough to see genetically modified soybeans, but if he'd have made it another year or two, he would have. So that's a tremendous, tremendous change from going to horsepower, literal horsepower, to big diesel tractors and 150, 200, 250 horsepower in one machine. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've probably had many conversations around the kitchen table about some of those changes. Do you think that he saw the changes as being part of progress and a modernization of farming and that this was a good thing? Or, you know, was it a mixed bag? Did he see some positives but also long for some of the community spirit that must have been lost as you lost homesteads? Well, I've got a picture of Dad, another picture, with all of our neighbors when one of our neighbors had a heart attack and died. He was pretty young. He wasn't 50 years old yet. And, of course, I was friends with his children, and and all the farmers got together to harvest his crops. And so I've got a picture of all those farmers from right here in the Langdon area gathered up there, and there must be 20 farmers in that picture. We don't have 20 farmers anymore. That was one of the good things that Dad saw. That was everybody pulling together. And Dad was a progressive farmer. He believed in fertilizer and he believed in pesticides. He thought that they were necessary and that they made his life better and made him more productive. But he also didn't like the chemicals that sold those those pesticides. He was very skeptical of dealing with them because he just didn't feel that they were reputable. He could didn't always feel that he could trust those big corporations because they weren't always honest about some of the things about their pesticides, what they would do and what they wouldn't do, or what the price for them ought to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I think Dad had a pretty healthy outlook. He was willing to adopt new technology, but he was also very skeptical of some of the people who were behind that technology and what their goals were. Mm-hmm. What about the community now? Do you feel like you still have a group of farmers, enough farmers in your region where where you have a sense of community? I think, yeah, but the community is, well, the community is shrunken. We have half as many people in Atchison County as we did in 1950 when I was born. Wow. So what that means is we still have some of the primary towns, like here it's uh, Fairfax, Rockport, and Tarkio are the main towns in Atchison County. All the other small towns like Langdon and Another one to the north, Watson, Missouri. They're just almost completely gone. And back in the day, they had schools and, and 4-H clubs. You know, one of the biggest 4-H clubs in Ashton County was the Langdon-friendly 4-H. That's the one I went to. Well, there there is no Langdon-friendly 4-H anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's just because there's nobody to come to the meetings. So despite the loss, do you feel like the production of food is up? We've lost homesteads, we've lost the number of farms, we've lost communities, but is that the price we've paid to produce more food? Well, I question the value of a lot of what we produce. I mean, I'm a farmer and I'm growing these things, so don't get me wrong, but the way we do it now is we produce for surplus, 
And then we, we tell ourselves, well, because we have a surplus, we have to export. And so we export. And when we export, we destroy someone else's market. And now, you know, we have free trade agreements, and so a lot of these countries we used to export to, they say, well, well now we need to export to your country. And we're constantly fighting these surpluses and fighting the currency valuations and the differences in different currencies, and farmers aren't equipped to do that. And we're basic people who live and work on the land, growing crops, growing livestock, and then to throw us into this big mix of international law and international currency and manipulation, like we've seen with China and some of the other Asian countries, makes it very hard for us to continue doing what we do. We're constantly subject to what someone else in some faraway place might do. Mm -hmm. So what happens to your corn, soybeans, and cattle? Well, the corn I grow is is a a food-grade corn. Actually, two types. I grow white corn, which is used uh, for corn chips and tortillas and things like that. And then I grow a corn called waxy corn that's grown primarily for its starch content. And so, of course, corn starch is an ingredient in quite a bit of food and has many, many food uses. And also in that extraction process that they use when they take the starch out of the corn, with waxy corn, they make DDGs, dry distiller grains, and and those are used in the livestock industry. So part of that corn that I grow that is actually for human use is also fed to animals. Uh, The soybeans I grow are seed soybeans. I grow them under contract with a large corporation. I get a small premium for growing those seed beans. And just about everything that I grow, I can't really say I know where it goes because a lot of the white corn is exported to Africa and Mexico as well as used in this country. And a lot of the products of the waxy corn, the corn itself isn't exported, but the products... uh, that the company in Kansas City makes from that corn are exported all over the world to Asia and every place. So it's a lot bigger market, and it's a lot harder to really wrap yourself around exactly where all that stuff does go, and it makes it kind of hard to know what you ought to sell it for, what the price ought to be, and when you ought to sell. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your cattle. What happens to that? Cattle are are grown on the farm. They're both by my son and his family and by my daughter and her family. And they're utilized locally. The, a lot of them, a lot of what they grow, we consume and some neighbors consume, are fed out. Others go to local, other local cattle producers, feedlots and such, who then go ahead and feed them out. So I don't believe that really any of the beef on the farm is exported at all. I believe that that's consumed right here in the United States and probably pretty close to home. Okay, well, we only have a half hour, and I feel like I could certainly talk to you a lot more about how these changes happen, and I'd love to know those, but I feel like we also have to jump into some of these other areas, so I'm going to have to cut myself short here. But I want to know how you got involved with the Organization for Competitive Markets, and I guess it is sort of a springboard from the crops that you produce and some of the markets, so... Do you feel like you have fair markets? Do you feel like there's been a problem with antitrust violations and how you might buy or sell some of your products? Well, there's a problem with 
the way our government views things these days. You know, 50 years ago, antitrust was something completely different from what it is today. Today, the government's position seems to be that as long as there are two companies, two huge multinational corporations with involvement around the entire world, as long as there are two companies doing the same thing, then there's competition. And the government seems to act as though they don't think telephone lines connect those companies, that that those companies can't talk to each other. And going back to when I was a boy, there were quite a number of seed companies. You know, now Monsanto, to name one, has taken over, I think, over 70 seed companies. They're the largest seed producer in the world. And we're down to just oh, three or four large multinational seed companies, patent holders now, who control the seed business through those patents. And the, and the government doesn't seem to see much wrong with that, but I see a lot wrong with it. There's no way to get away from them. If you live in a certain part of the country, then you're pretty much a, a captive of a couple of those corporations, and there's no way to, no easy way as a farmer to get yourself out of that. The same thing with our cattle markets. Our cattle markets now are, are being controlled by just a handful of big packers. Again, another three or four companies, huge multinational companies. And going back 50 years, most farmers fed some cattle, and they always fed generally two hogs for every steer because that's what it took to clean up the waste from the cattle was a couple of hogs in a lot with the cattle. Now you can't even sell hogs. The way I could when I started farming, it, I had access to probably four or five different markets for hogs. There isn't any access to a hog market right here locally anymore. That's all been taken over by integrators. And so most farms produce hogs now under contract. They don't actually market those hogs. In fact, the farmers don't even own the hogs they feed. They don't own the feed they feed the hogs. It's the same way with poultry. Uh, most poultry producers don't own the chickens. They don't own the feed. They only own a building and a contract that they're given, and that contract can be revoked at any time. So they're constantly at risk that if they offend the company or if the company chooses to downsize or shift its business someplace else, they could lose that contract and lose the ability to pay off what is hundreds of thousands of dollars up above a million dollars in some cases of investment or facilities are good for absolutely nothing but that one thing. And they cannot do that one thing. They cannot feed those chickens or feed those hogs without a contract. Hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Mr. Richard Oswald, fifth-generation Missouri farmer. And we are talking about the changes that he has witnessed on his farm and in his community and certainly nationwide. So what you're describing to me is an example of what I hear farmers say or talk about in terms of they feel like they're being squeezed. They're, you know, they really don't have much choice. And yet on the one hand, I'll hear some of the corporate folks say, well, you know, farmers have a choice, consumers have a choice. But what I'm hearing you say is that actually the choices for what you produce and where you sell that either meat or grain is really limited. Well, it is. There's consolidation every place you look in agriculture. There's consolidation in the grain elevator industry. I mean, we've seen a lot of grain elevators, small country elevators disappear or be swallowed up into big corporations. Uh, the same thing again where there are generally multinational corporations. It's just that way every place. 
it's a little better in some places than others, but still there's that constant consolidation, and we really don't get much help from the government. We really don't have anyone saying there ought to be a limit who's in a position to help us. We say it. A lot of farmers say it. A lot of farmers are afraid to say anything because they're afraid of the retribution that they might experience for having criticized someone that they rely on so heavily simply to make a living. Mm-hmm. And is that where both the Organization for Competitive Markets and the National Farmers Union comes in? Yeah, I think it is. I think they're, they're not the same organizations. The Organization right. for Competitive Markets is, is constantly seeking this antitrust enforcement that we don't get in seeds and, and in the cattle markets and hog markets and, and for poultry producers, too. We've given a lot of thought lately to, to poultry producers because that poultry industry has sort of led the way, followed by hogs, and hogs are very clearly going the same way as poultry. And right now they're whittling away at the beef industry as well. And the beef industry in Missouri and a lot of other states in the Union is, is sort of the last vestige of a really independent livestock production. It's still done by family farmers. It's still done, like in, in, in Missouri, for instance, on a very small scale on a lot of farms. Family farms that raise maybe only 20 or 30 head of cattle each year, and that's the, the average herd size in the state of Missouri, and yet we're the second largest beef-producing state in the Union. So a lot of the people I know, like my daughter and her husband, have their own business. They both grew up on the farm. They both grew up here around Langdon, and yet they have their own business. But they long to be a part of that agricultural picture in the state. They want to be involved, and they love cattle. They love grow crops. And so they have a small farm, and they have a small cow herd, and they just devote themselves to that. They work hard all day in their business, and then at the end of the day, it's not time to go home. It's time to do chores. And there are a number of young people across our state and across our nation who really want to experience agriculture, who love it and just want to do it. And they don't do it for the money. They do it because of their love of animals and the outdoors and the land. And that's something we need to keep in mind and we need to nurture it. But the more and more we allow these big multinational corporations to assume control of our beef industry, we're threatening these young people, these family young family farmers, like my family, who really should have not only a right but an opportunity to do these things. And, you know, it's good for them and it's good for the country because in the end they're growing food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm always amazed like how and why people don't recognize national food security being really based in producing our own food. And it's one of the reasons why I'm concerned about country of origin labeling and the imports of meat into the United States, why are we not just producing the food that we need, perhaps doing some exports, but really focusing on feeding our own country on the basis of national security? Yeah, you know, it used to be that I, I may even be guilty of this at some point. I quit saying it a long time ago, but we used to say American farmers feed the world. Yeah. Well, it was never true. We never did. We fed our own country, and we sold some exports just to, to handle the surplus. But today, we're really in danger of not even having fair and open access to our own markets, our own domestic markets right here at home, because there's a big push through 
this repeal of country of origin labeling and through an approval by USDA to allow a lot more foreign beef into this country. And now with, without country of origin labeling, it won't even be labeled. USDA says it's okay to bring Argentine beef in. They say it's okay to bring Mexican beef in. They say it's okay to bring Canadian beef in. And yet all those countries have real health concerns. Mm -hmm. BSE, they say there's no BSE issue in Canada. And yet every so often they find another case of mad cow disease in a Canadian cow. And foot and mouth disease is still rampant in South America and it's still in Mexico. And bringing that raw product into the United States risks contaminating our own soil and risks making our own cattle sick. And foot and mouth disease is something that's been eradicated in the United States for years now, for close to 100 years, I think. And now they're risking all that. And I just think what an awful thing that would be, how it would decimate what's left of our young family farmers if all of a sudden this awful disease that we haven't ever had to deal with, any of any generation living today has ever even experienced, what if we had to go into that and see the, the, the horrible damage that it would do to our beef cattle herd in this country? I don't think it's worth it, and I think it's wrong. Well, it's interesting to hear your perspective, because from a consumer perspective, I think most of us would agree that we like knowing where our food comes from. We like to see it labeled as such, and Gosh, I feel like I have such a luxury because I can buy directly from a farmer, but I recognize that as a luxury. So with regard to country of origin labeling, if consumers don't have that, we are really eating in the dark. Well, we are. I think that recent news about finding ground beef that had not beef in it, but other completely different... Beaver and horse meat, to be (laughs) specific, yeah. (laughs) I mean, who puts beaver in their ground beef? I don't understand that. I don't even know how that could even happen, but right. apparently it did. And so we're going to start dealing with issues like that without country of origin labeling because there are places, other countries, where they do that. We're going to start importing chicken from China. China has sold us contaminated pet food. They've sold us contaminated baby food. But now we're we're going to import chicken from China and really – what reason is there to do that when we have all the poultry production that we have in this country? We have the ability to produce all the poultry we need. Why do we need that exposure, and why do we need that competition from a country that manipulates its currency and really pays very little attention to human rights as well? So when consumers go to the grocery store, they see a USDA inspection sticker. And I can see how consumers may find some sort of comfort in that symbol, perhaps even confuse that with a country of origin. So we probably need to do a little bit more educating with regard to consumer buying of meat products in the marketplace and then also empower us to reach out to our legislators. And what do we want the messages to our legislators to be? Well, I I think a good question to ask a legislator is who elects you? Not who gives you money in your pack, but but who elects you? Where do your loyalties lie? Do your loyalties lie with your own people, or do your loyalties lie with your contributors? And the contributors can be anybody anywhere. So I'd really like to see that question asked. I'd like to see a lot of legislators held accountable for some of the things they've supported and voted for and, and some of the things they won't fix. 
but the problem is I think that a lot of consumers have a limited amount of time to learn about this. They're all busy. Uh, you know, most households have two workers and husband and a wife who go off to jobs every day, and they're working because they want to maintain their standard of living. And so when they come home, they have kids and they have school activities and all the other things that people do, and they only have a limited amount of time to really study food and be up on these issues, and that's why a lot of consumers are even confused about the difference between GMO food and non-GMO food and organic food. They don't really understand that there's a big difference between organic and non-GMO or GMO. They just they just don't have time to study up on those things, and and they may not have time to study up on country of origin labeling, and that's what's so wrong about this USDA label on all these imported products because it doesn't really represent uh, the big picture. It doesn't really tell the true story about that food. Did right-to-farm legislation help the farmer or hurt the farmer, and why? Well, I, I think right-to-farm legislation is just another excuse for big corporations to do whatever they want to do and claim that they have the right to do it. And I think that we had the right to farm before we passed that in the state of Missouri, but you have to look at what was going on in the Missouri legislature at the time, and what they were doing was they were loosening up rules, making it easy for foreign countries like China to come in and buy more Missouri farmland, which they did, and they also facilitated by doing that they facilitated china's takeover of uh, smithfield foods smithfield foods was actually the owner of uh, one of the biggest missouri pork co-ops farmland industries back when they were producing pork uh, uh, they went broke and smithfield ended up with that so now china owns part of what used to be a big co-op that was based in Kansas City, Missouri, that produced hogs. And I think that the General Assembly didn't have their priorities straight at the time, and now we have a new worry because uh, obviously the Chinese economy is not as strong as it was, so we need to worry about what's going to happen to these Missouri assets that China owns if their economy continues to go downhill. Okay, so Mr. Oswald, we just have a minute or two left. There are so many important issues involving farmers, farmland, ownership, and the ultimate what ends up on our plate. In the last minute or so, what would you like consumers to come away with from this interview? I want them to understand that all farmers in the United States that I know really take their job seriously, and they want to do a good job, and they want their customers to appreciate them. But... Not all farmers understand some of the implications of this corporate ownership of agriculture that we're building in the United States. So I want them to understand that they they have to educate themselves and they have to be familiar with the issues because there's nothing more important other than taking care of your children. There's nothing more important for you to do than to understand what that is that you're putting in your mouth each day to nourish your body and nourish the bodies of all your members of your family. That's the most important, most critical job they have. Well, I want to thank you very much for being my guest. I will provide links to websites where people can read your excellent articles and learn more about farming and what it's like to be a farmer today. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Mr. Richard Oswald, fifth 
Generation Missouri Farmer. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Mr. Oswald, for being my guest. Oh, thank you, Melinda. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate what you do, too. 